Good evening, everyone. If you'll take your seats, I think we'll get started. <coughs> it's my pleasure. I'm Judy Cooper, the coordinator of public programs, and it's my pleasure to welcome you all this evening. Um, we're delighted to have Leah Papura back here at the Pratt. This is, I think, uh, for... Um, the third time, and but it's been a few years, so we're really happy that you're here. Um, Leah Papura is the author of seven collections of essays, poems, and translations. And as I said, we're glad to have her back here for her new essay collection, Rough Likeness. On Rough Likeness, Philip Lopate wrote, uh, and I quote, Leah Papura is at the um, forefront of the new essay, and the new essay he had in, um, in caps. And this latest book, Her Best, takes us much closer into the rough terrain of her quirky mind than she has ever gone before. Rough likeness is an astonishment, and end of quote. Another critic, Leah Hager-Cohen, wrote, and I quote, Leah Purpura is fierce. She creates a kind of word origami, folding phonemes and inquiries into intricate paper delights. Um, if language is, as she, as she suggests in one essay, a game we will all agree to play, then Purpura is at once a master of the game and a soulful, wild playmate, end quote. Um, Leah's many awards include, uh, this is the newest one, a 2012 Guggenheim Foundation Fellowship. She's um, been a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award. Uh, she's had NEA and Fulbright Fellowships, four Pushcart Prizes, and her work has been selected for the Best American um, Essays of 20, 2011. She is a writer in residence at Loyola University, and she teaches in the Rainier Writing Workshop MFA program in Tacoma, Washington. Please join me in welcoming Leah Purpura. Thank you, Judy. Thank you so much for hosting me, and it's just great to be back. I don't really know what... Is this okay? Is that good? Okay. I don't really know what a, the new essayists are all about. But it sounds like a band, and I like that. So if I have to be at the forefront there, that's okay. Um, I had an interview with Tom Hall uh, recently, and it was played this morning. And his first question went something like, well, I read your book, and my wife asked me, so what is it about? And I you know, your blood always runs cold as an author when someone kind of throws that out first. Um, and I told him I do get that a lot and that it's hard to say what the book is about uh, for a few different reasons. And then I went on uh, with, you know, whatever I could make up at the moment. But I did come up with some reasons, and I wrote them out because I intend from now on to answer that question uh, very thoroughly. So... The essays each tackle individual subjects, 
Some subjects are tools and using them well and with fluency, cliches and what happens to language and thought when you use accepted frames of expression, one essay investigates a strange sign on a bridge that refers to an accidental death from jumping. Another meditates on the act of remembering and how in unexpected ways we're all custodians of each other's past. One meditates on collecting beach glass and another is on the unspoken beauty of shit. So that's a little compilation of what the essays are about subject-wise. Uh, but here's another reason uh, that it's hard uh, to describe what these things are about. The essays' stances are really varied. Um, in some of them, I'm writing with a kind of metaphysical eye. Some of them seem to be written by a kind of freelance biologist. Uh, some are largely witnessed and journalistic. Some are more sensual, some are literary and engage with books I've read, and some are f more full of research and others are more like large poems. So that little grouping of um, ideas makes it hard to talk about what they're about. Perhaps the hardest, what makes it hardest to say what, these thing, what the book is about is this. These essays are like conversations, and I think about them in that way. They're the kinds of conversations you have with an old and good friend, uh, one with whom you can meander and digress into really thrilling side streets, yet one who you trust to accompany you back to the initial point you are after or place you started from. Sometimes after such conversations, you just sort of stand back and marvel a little bit and sort of get back into the bright light of day and think, well, we really roamed far, didn't we? That's often what writing feels like to me, and it's a sensation that I really want to always retain in my work. So if it doesn't sound to my ear to be conversational, I know something's off. So what are they about? Each essay is its own conversation, and they're all held together by the mind of their writer, and uh, this mind, I hope, offers a very particular way of being. Okay, So I hope that kind of holds it all together. And I'll read two essays tonight, and it's, it's particularly great to be reading for a hometown audience because you'll know these places and you'll have associations with these places. So, you know, reading in, in Iowa or Michigan, you know, I'm, I'm always just hoping for the best. Um, but you'll, you'll, you'll hear and know um, this particular train station and you might have had, you know, I, I expect you might have had a similar thought or experience this is a really short one, and I guess you could argue me into uh, thinking about it as a long poem, if you want to argue, we could. It's called On Luxury. No one's ready. To sit here on a wooden bench and not have to think of a gunman shattering the train station's bustle, early light, scent of coffee, that's a luxury. 
I forget sometimes. Like I forget having legs, which is just a given, we say. But it is given. I'm not arguing by God, luck, or science, just that it could be otherwise. And luxury is its best measure. That unit, lux, of illumination, diurnal in slices across a pine floor, ferocious midday, translucing my boy's ear, jeweling a wineberry, breaking in surf, and in outgoing ripples, recomposing its silvery veil. Here, K-9 patrols are making their rounds, sniffing our bags, moving along. People take mild note and return to their business. Why aren't we ready to think of our peace? How amazing I've never planned my escape. Quick, let me think. I'd run down to the tracks, jump off the end, and hide under the platform. But I needn't do that. Luxury, to read in the Baltimore Sun, murder rate, and not have to see the facts of my life recounted therein. Luxury, to read and not follow the phrase down to a bloody wet stash of drugs, clothes torn and scattered, the whole torrent of shit, junk, paraphernalia, jumping the curb, sluicing a front stoop, my stoop, the one I'd climb daily, returning from work, couldn't scrub clean with deep cracks where the necklace they shot him for landed. Luxury, to turn back to roll coffee paper, to pair shooting with elsewhere, to let elsewhere be faceless and stoopless, miasmic, pangyric, and broken from mainland, unmapped, unsketched, or sketched very badly and broadly with stylized alley and pile of garbage, shattered glass, prostitutes. I can skim fast, skip the rock of my gaze over the headlines, let it grip nothing, be seized by nothing, just skitter across and sink. Dear stage, dear props, dear National Geographic-toned urban blight shots, dusk coming on, and through one framing link of the sagging chain fence, a slick backlit rat. A child with soda toddling close to rat garbage needle, parentless on the glittering asphalt. A deepening red-purple centerfold sky, generously layering rooftops with color, forcing that beauty in decay wobble, ruin threshed, redemptive, as night comes on, lavish yet stark, in this, the last photo, so we might turn the page and still breathe. Yes, luxury, in Latin also a vicious indulgence. Looks like bag pastries, coffee, briefcases. Neat rolling suitcases. I still think they're marvels. Red caps with trolleys helping the oldsters. Benches, a rich, worn mahogany. Walls of marble and quarried in Sicily. Wall sconces, bronze, and the whole of the interior lined with creamy rookwood of Cincinnati tiles. I'm balancing on the very edge here as the well-intentioned music policy promotes this morning's calming selection, the New World Symphony. And here comes the English horn's rise and stretch moment 
all the tender new foresty ferns unfurling, slow rambles in meadows, encounters with moss, swallows, silvery waterfall, everything fresh, alighting, awaking. And here I am, among those in the station arriving, departing, here and alive. Alive and recalling how tense that passage when I played it myself. The exposed intervals, not terribly complicated, but treacherous still, as every English horn player knows. Careless phrasing at the modulation, or a tempo too slow, opening quarters especially, tanks the primordial, tips the whole thing into crassness. Even today, I'm nervous hearing it, having been trained to anticipate ruin and adjust. Here, now, in the station, I'm listening hard, as he is, to the music, in a moment of stillness awaiting his train, this beautiful, scruffy conservatory student en route to New York with his violin. I see his distraction, not this again, not the new world, then a softening, as he busies himself. It's Dvorak, at least, not Pachelbel's god-awful canon. As he takes out his book, travel cup, iPod, plugs himself in. Mahler, I bet. He's a serious sort. The board flips to departures, and he gathers his stuff. There he goes toward his train. There he goes with the crowd finding the gate. He's distracted, his girlfriend, audition, apartment. He's not thinking this lightness, this early bird ramble could be the very last thing he hears. There he goes, off to gate E with that luxury. So um, you can date this essay because that flipboard doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> At the train station, I just realized uh, reading it, it's, it's all electronic now. And so you can't sit and listen to that as it rolls through. That's sad. I think you got a real workout on that. Um. <laughs> that was a hard one. <laughs> Okay. If there's anything you'd like to ask, we can talk after. This, this next piece um, is called On Coming Back as a Buzzard. And it was first published in Orion magazine, which is um, a, a really kind of amazing compilation of contemporary environmental writing and um, both journalistic, essayistic, literary, poetic. And um, when it was first published, there are a number of really interesting comments. And a few of them had to do with the fact that I used the word buzzard and not the proper vulture. Um, and I you know, didn't define what, what kind of vulture. And buzzard lovers out there um, are you know, on a campaign to have this bird taken seriously. And they felt buzzard just really um, was way too colloquial and did it a disservice. <laughs> and I didn't know what to say, you know, to write back an apology about, about such a thing. I really did mean buzzard, um, and I, I meant to, 
to talk about the bird in its scruffier form. And uh, I, I hope I, I do my own form of homage here because um, it's really, I guess, my, my totem animal. Uh, and, and so this, this essay also kind of works through um, thoughts about, uh, you know, sort of being recast or reborn in a certain shape, in a certain form, uh, and ultimately kind of, well, you'll see, it, it, it argues with, the, with, that, with that idea about, of sort of reincarnation. On coming back as a buzzard. There are buzzards at the College of Notre Dame, by the way. I have seen them. I know, coming back as a crow is a lot more attractive. If crows and buzzards do the same rough job, picking, tearing, and cleaning up, who wouldn't rather return as a shiny blue crow with a mind for locks and puzzles? A strong voice and poems struck, sleek, familial, omen-bearing, full of mourning and ardor and talk. Buzzards are nothing like this, but something other, complicated by strangeness and ugliness. They intensify my thinking. They look prehistoric, pieced together, concerned, I might simply say I feel closer to them, always have, and proceed. Because really, as I turn it over, the problem I'm working on here, coming back as a buzzard, has not so much to do with buzzards after all. A buzzard is expected at the table. The rush would be over by the time I got there, and I, my lateness sanctioned, might rightfully slip in. I wouldn't saunter nor would I blow in dramatically, flounce, as my grandmother would say. The road would be the dinner table, just as the dinner table, with its veering discussions, is always a road somewhere. And others' distraction would resolve, well, I would resolve it, into a clean plate. I would be missed if I were not there, not at first, not in the frenzy, but later, Without me, no outlines, no profiles come clear. The very idea of scaffolding is diminished. The phrase, the smaller scraps are tastier, would have no defender. Close to the bone would fall out of use as a measure of sharply felt truth. Without a chance to walk away from abundance, thus proving their wealth, None of the first eaters would be content with their portion. I make their bestowing upon the least of us possible. With me around, mishaps, side of the highway, over a cliff, more slowly dispensed by poison, do not have to be turned to a higher purpose. I step in. I make use of. And here, I'm whittling away at the problem. As a buzzard, I'd know the end of a thing is precisely not that. Things go on in their way. My presence making the end a beginning, reinterpreting the idea of abundance, allowing for the ever-giving nature of nature, 
I'd know these not as religious thoughts. It's that apportioned rightly, there's always enough, more than enough. Nothing but gifts on this poor, poor earth, says Miwosh, who understood perfectly the resemblance between dissolve and increase. Rain scours and sun burns away excesses of form, and rain also seeds and sun urges forth fuses of green. I'd love best the movement of stages and increments. To repeat the phrase, this bank and shoal of time, while below me banks and shoals of a body went on welling, receding, rising and dropping, I'd be perched on a wire, waiting, ticking off not the meat reducing, but how what's left, like a dune, shifts and reconstitutes. Yes, it looks like I hover, and the hovering I know suggests a discomforting eagerness, malevolence. Why is that? I haven't killed a thing. If the waiting seems untoward, it may be confirming something too real, too true, that all the parts that slip from sight can't be easily had, collapse in on themselves, and require digging. All the parts that promise small, intense bursts of sweetness unnerve us, while the easily abundant, the spans, the expanses, thick haunch, round belly and shoulder, all that lifts easily to another's lips and retains its form till the end seems pure, right and deserved, proper and lawful. Thus, butchers have their neat diagrams. One knows to call for chop, loin, shank, shank, rump. I get to be one who, when past the plate, seeks first the succulent eye. This would mark me, foreigner. Stubborn lover of scraps and dark meat, base, trained on want, and come to love piecemeal offerings, the shreds and overlooked tendernesses too small for a meal, but carefully, singularly gathered, like brief moments that burst, isolate beams of sun in truck fumes, underside of wrist against wrist, sudden cool from a sewer grate rising. I incline toward the tucked and folded parts. It's that the old country can't be bred out. The internals with names that lack correspondence, the sweetbreads and umbles, bungs, hoods, and liver and lights. If the road is a plate, then the outskirts of fields and settlements where piles are heaped are plates too. And the gullies, the ditches, the alleys, all plates. I'd get to reorder your thoughts about troves, to prove the spilled and shoveled aside to be treasure, to reconfer notions of milk and honey and how to approach the unbidden. I resemble, as I suppose we all do, the things I consume. Bent to those raw flaps of meat, red torn cast aside, my head also looks like a leftover thing, chewed. I have my ways of avoiding attention. Vomit to turn away predators. 
shit like the elegant stork on my legs to cool off, to disinfect the swarming microbes I tread daily. I am gentle and cautious. I ride the thermals and flap very little and locate food by smell. I'm a black V in air. A group of us on the ground is a venue. In the air, we're a kettle. I reuse even the language. A simple word, aftermath, structures my day. Sometimes I think, epic. Doesn't everyone apply to their journey a story? And then fly-blown, feculent, scavenge come, how it must seem to others, and the frame of my stories reduced. Things are made daily again. The first eaters are furiously driven by hunger and brute need, releasing trap doors in the brain. Such push and ambition. I hold things in pantry spots in my body and take out and eat what I've saved when I need it, and so am never furious. On my plate, choice reduces. I take what I come upon, and the work of a breeze cools the bowl's steaming contents. There's a beauty in this singularity. Consider bringing to each occasion your one perfect bowl, one neat fork-spoon-knife set, that when the chance comes, you're given to draw the tine curves between lips, pull, lick, tap clean the spoon's curvature. And for these sensations, there's ample time. Time pinned open like the core of a long summer afternoon. Am, am I happy? Yes, in momentary ways, which I think is a good way to feel about things that come when they will and not when you will them. While I'm waiting, I get to be with the light as it shifts off the wet phone wire, catches low sun, holds pearls and unpearls drops of water. If I bounce just a little, they shiver and fall, and my weight calls more pearls to me. There's light over the blood-matted rib fur and higher up translucing on the still unripped ear of the fox. Light through drops of fresh resin on pine limbs. Light on ditch water, never minding the murk. I get fixed by spores of light. Silver shine on silks and tassels. Light choosing the lowliest, palest blue gristle for lavishing. I wait at a height and from afar, up here on the telephone wire, with what looks like a hunch-shouldered burden. Below, the red coils of spilled guts gather dust on the ground. Such a red and its steam in the cold gets to be shock and riches. Any red interruption on asphalt on hillside at dune's edge, shock and not a strewn thing, not waste, not a mess. Plump entrails crusting with sage and dirt tighten in sun. Piercing that is an undersung moment, filled with a tender resistance, a sweetness, slick curves and tangles to dip into, tear, stretch, snap, and swallow. The problem 
With coming back as a buzzard is the notion of coming back. I can't believe in the coming back. Sure, I play the dinnertime game, everyone identifying their animal soul, the one they choose to reveal their best nature, the one when the time comes they hope fate will award them, strong eagle, smart dolphin, joyful golden retriever. But there's the issue of where, of where I'd have to go first in order to make a return. And the idea of things I did or failed to do in a lifetime, fixing the terms of my return and the keeping of records and just who's totting it up. As soon as I imagine returning anew, I lose heart. It's too easy. Anyway, I already think like a buzzard. The times I forget my child, most powerfully marked by the moments that follow in which I abruptly remember him again with sharp breath, disturbed at the oversight, those times are evidence enough of my fall into reverie, into the all that is set unbidden before me, inclinations gone to full folds, bone-shaded hollows, easings and slouchings, taut ridges, matched dips, cupped small of the back, back of the neck, the ever-giving body, yes, I take what's set before me. So much feels hosted and fleet. I chew a little koan. All things go, always more where that came from. I already know the buzzard. That the world calls me to hissing and grunting, that I am given a nose for decay's weird sweetness, that I am arranged in a broken-winged pose to dry feathers and bake off mites in the sun, that I love the weight, that I have my turn, that no one wants my job, so I go on being needed. I have my human equivalences for these. Thank you for coming. So if you'd like to chat, we can chat. I can answer things. <laughs> uh, thank you very much. And the readings reminded me uh, that how much sometimes uh, I enjoy writing when it's writing. And so I have a couple of questions mm -hmm. related to listening to writing. Uh, one is, um, you know, they do a lot of books on tapes. Mm -hmm. Typically, they're novels, it seems. Mm -hmm. So I, I wondered, this is a multi-part question, if um, your books, which are essays, um, are available on tape. Um, second and related, you know, music now, and um, this probably reflects my ignorance, but a lot of music is downloaded in terms of an album to download a song. Mm -hmm. So again, in listening to um, you read your work as opposed to reading your work, mm -hmm. I wondered if essays like yours are available like iTunes um, under technology where you could essentially download uh -huh. someone reading an essay versus Mm -hmm. And the third related question is, how do 
as in terms of like reading, mm -hmm. normally mm -hmm. I read the book, mm -hmm. versus having someone read the words out loud mm -hmm. to be enjoyed as you just did. Mm -hmm. That's a huge, like, media-oriented question, and it's full of incredibly interesting, you know, parts. And you know, other people should certainly feel free to to chime in. The um, <coughs> some of these essays are available easily at actually Orion's website, and um, they have many magazines now have a, a very nice feature. Um, you can sort of look them up online and read, select poems, stories, or essays. You can, you know, just sort of select them and, and, and listen to them being read by the author. So um, it, you can find them easily by simply looking up, you know, various magazines online and looking for the highlighted. Uh, and it's an audio, you just sit in front of your computer and, you know, listen. It's very easy that way. Um, I, ha I don't know if this was one of the questions, but I'm going to throw it in there. I have a really hard time with books on tape uh, myself. I can't listen to anything when I'm driving. I mean, music, sure, because I'm singing and it's, it's fine. But um, it, it, w I really need to be sitting and reading in that, in that private space. If I'm listening to books on tape, I am a really dangerous driver. I'm you know, veering off the road, and I'm a little dangerous anyway, <laughs> because I'm looking too much for my own good. But, you know, when I'm in, involved, um, it, you know, in, in, a, in listening to a book, I'm completely elsewhere. I am very, very far removed from, you know, this, this place where I'm supposed to be paying attention. And people read, you know, at their own pace. And it's usually, you know, I want to go back and read the last sentence. I think I might read differently than other people. You know, I think writers might read a little bit differently sometimes. So I loop back around and I want to read the sentence over. And if you're listening on tape, it's, it's already long gone. So I would acknowledge that it is hard to listen to writers read their work aloud, especially poems. Uh, you really need to stay focused and just follow at someone else's pace. And I'm not good at doing that. Um, but if you can listen and allow uh, voices and inflections to somehow help you understand the work, it's, it, it's a great gift. It's, it's also you know, an, an interesting uh, way of connecting to the work. Um, as for, what was the other question? At downloading, finding, how do I feel about my, my work? Well, you essentially indicated that some... Yeah, some of it is... Yes. Yeah. Right. I think this is available on e ebooks. Is that right? You have. It. Do you have? It? Yes. On my website, you could. Yeah, I feel better about that, I guess. <laughs> but, you know, really, if, if you enjoy listening to these things read aloud, then, you know, listen, listen that way. I'm, I'm writing these um, pieces 
really very much the way one writes a letter. I like writing letters. I do write letters. I like seal them up, I put them in an envelope and send them to people. And so these essays are, are really epistolary in that sense. I imagine a reader, you know, repairing to a kind of private space, a chair like that would be great. And, you know, sitting with, with these pieces and, and reading in that kind of private, intimate space. So I guess that would fulfill some notion of mine. Yeah, sure. Yes. Good. Mm-hmm. And I, I want to know, because I've written a few books, I haven't had any published yet, mm-hmm. I'd like to know uh, from you, um, from an author's standpoint point of view, when do you get to the point where the writer's right, and you can rewrite and rewrite, when do you get Endlessly. to the point where you say, you know, this is the final product? Yeah. I mean, you know, because yeah. you can always go back and look at your work and, and want to fix it up a little better mm-hmm. Yeah. That is such a complicated question because I mean there there's sort of two answers. One is it never really gets to that point and you, you know, sort of abandon it and let it go. Um and uh and, and that's that's a that's a, a reality. You know, there I think the more you work and the more you write, the the um more adept you become at, at, at feeling when you've kind of um, fulfilled a vision that you've, you've had. But that said, um, I'm still reading these thinking, ooh, that's a, that's a clumsy sentence, you know? I, I, oh, why did you put a semicolon there? That makes it way too long and the rhythm's off. And, um, so that's like the backtrack going on sometimes in my head. Um, especially when reading poems, when I think this is this this image is re- this is not clear at all. You could have done, and I'm you know kind of editing in my head. Um, so in one sense, you 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 never stop wanting to write, even when the the piece is finished. You know, you're still very much in um, working mode. I guess I, I don't even want to say revision mode, but you're in working mode really very often. Um, I think sometimes one claims being finished because you know you're just bored with the thing and it's like you know it's time to put it away. Uh, sometimes you finish because you feel that's all you can do with this story, and then you try it again in another story, and so maybe that one is finished. It's not what you want it to be, but it's finished. And when you say that, it can kind of release you to work on the next thing. You know, even if you're dealing with the same subject, it's new. And, and so it's kind of a, a combination of developing an intuition uh, and understanding that you don't have to do it all in one story. You can put it aside and try it again in another story or poem or whatever. So I guess the answer to your question has, or, or I have multiple answers to that, to that question. Is that helpful? Oh, okay. I've lived with it for a while. I have long-standing feelings about buzzards. <laughs> I really do. 
we go way back, and um, I don't know. You know, it's sometimes um, it it might feel when you're reading, you know, an essay that there was an occasion that sparked the thing, um, and sometimes it's very clear that there a writer will incorporate the occasion, you know, in the actual piece. And other times, it's just a long-standing pressure that one day kind of breaks through, and you know, you're kind of seized by the desire to write about this, you know, buzzard already. So, um, and then, you know, once you put that lens on, all kinds of moments feed in, and you can start, you know, to to um, see daily that this idea um, you, that you've been living with this idea in this way and in this way and this way. So information kind of feeds that once you've got that lens going. You see buzzards all over the place. <laughs> so. Yeah, I began. I think that I think that's wow. I never thought about. I never. I don't think I ever had a narrative arc. I don't think I do narrative arc. Redemptive arc is nice, but I don't think I. I, I do narrative arc, um, and I think uh, probably the real answer to that to that question is I started writing essays at a point in my writing life when I I really was having a hard time with poems, and my husband suggested that I try to write some prose. Just go from one margin to the other margin. And I said, that is a really stupid idea. And, um, and then went upstairs and did it. Thanks, Jed. And, um, and, and you know, the, the, so the, the prose was, 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 um, it, was very, it, it was very immediate. I literally looked out the window and wrote what I saw. And it was very freeing, and I wasn't thinking about, you know, making any particular thing happen. I was thinking about trying to keep, you know, the words going. And so I, you know, I think it was, it, it was pretty unselfconscious in that way. Um, and I still try to remain as kind of ignorant and dumb as possible about what it is I'm doing. Um, and. And so, you know, I, I, I feel very much that these essays are a, a fairly good imprint of, you know, the mind on the page. It's vague. It's a vague answer, I think. D did you want to ask, some, ask it differently and pry something else out of me? Okay. I'll, yeah, I will. The question is, why do I want? Why? Why do I try to stay as ignorant as possible about what I'm writing? Because there are many different brains going on. 
there are editorial brains and critical brains and brains that once prodded into a certain kind of framework kind of seize up. And I'm aware of all of those brains going on, you know, that are, that are sort of hovering and out there and impinging. And um, I would really like the experience of writing to be full of surprise for me. And I'd like to feel things um, anew. I'd like to be shocked. And um, I am very much aware of, uh, you know, shaping and frameworks and organization and, you know, endless revisions. You know, I don't mean in any way to suggest that I, you know, sort of stand with my arms open and like channel it from the great force. Um, you know, these essays go through often 50 revisions. So I'm, I'm working through to, um, you know, a, a kind of finality or something I can let go of. Um, and being sort of trained up as a poet has been um, really critical in understanding architecture and form. And so I'm, by ignorant, I mean... Um, I would like these questions of craft and shape and architecture to arise as I'm writing. Um, and I'd like to respond to them as they arise rather than feel in any way I'm uh, applying myself to any sort of uh, template, theoretical, architectural. Um, so the, less, the, 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 the fewer sort of outside theoretical phrases I have to work with, and the more I can make up on my own, um, the better. Okay. Yeah. Anything else? I really like the way you write. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Well, thank you. <laughs> My question is that to sort of create that artistic space in the way you create, and how do you, how do, you do that, create that artistic space when there's you know, stuff going on? <laughs> Yeah, okay. Well, I'm I'm pretty disciplined about these things, you know. I mean, I I try to keep my life as simple as possible. Um I get up early. I work in both long stretches and short sprints, you know. If I I can't have, you know, I must I I can't have like a really rigid schedule. I have a schedule, but it can't be too rigid because on some days, you know, there are carpools to deal with and so on. And so I think it's, it's, it's this mix of being like super disciplined and kind of flexible about it all. And, and just, you know, there's a lot of stuff I don't do that I'd like to do. Um, and a lot of ways I'd, I'd like to just 
you know, like say yes to dopey things in the world. <laughs> I don't know. Like what kinds of things? I don't, just parties and stuff like that, you know. <laughs> Endless parties that I'm invited to. But um, it's... Uh, you have to make time for reading also. So, you know, there's there's both, like, output time and take-in time that you, you have to do. I, I don't really know... I have a great family, you know, that really helps. People who are supportive and help keep the world back um, in certain ways and take on a lot of responsibility and, you know, do things and fill in for me in ways that, you know, do, do stuff that I can't do. You know, if I had to spend all the, you know, time, like, figuring out how to deal with computer crap, you know, I'd get a lot less writing done, but... Jed does a lot of that. So um, so it's that weird combination of being like really disciplined and, and sort of flexible and just keeping it as simple as possible. Like when I go shopping, I go down the aisle, same aisle and I pick the same stuff <laughs> all the time. So, I, you know, I'm, I, I, could, I, could, I could probably shop like this, just like, you know, grabbing. I know where the things are. You know, I put them in. So... Okay, so I've been invited to a a, a sort of garden party reading um, by uh, a a patron of um, my press, and I will not read Shit's Beautiful at that garden party. (laughs) Yes. also, coming back as a buzzard would be really weird at a garden party. And I think there will be little sandwiches and, you know, people with little summer drinks. And I don't think they want to hear about entrails and, you know, that kind of thing. But there is um, there's an essay uh, in here called Jump. And it is about, uh, I mentioned it a bit in the introduction, and it's an essay that uh, deals with a sign on a bridge, a kind of prominent bridge at the University of Iowa on that campus. And that is very place-bound, and I would absolutely read that at Iowa. Um, People would be interested in it. It's a wacky sign, and, you know, everyone who crosses this bridge thinks about it and wonders about it aloud. So I'd, I'd read that there. Some of these pieces are too long. They're just long for readings because they're, as I said earlier, meant to be read as letters and almost almost privately in expansive space. So to read these sort of meditative letter-like pieces to an audience um, is hard. Some of them are not really meant to be read and um, others are meant to be read. So some are more public 
and open and performative and others are quieter and more meditative and do, um, do their job, I think, more powerfully in a kind of one-on-one one -on -one situation. Um, sometimes the sentences are just really long and I, I, I like them on the page, but when I read them aloud, I think, like, what? H how many commas can you possibly use in one sentence? <laughs> Why did you do that? <laughs> so, um, yeah, so yeah, it really, it really does vary, audience-wise. Do I ever relax? <laughs> Um, uh, I guess I don't think I relax enough now that you ask the question. What do you mean relax? Like, do, do you mean just like read at the beach kind of thing? Uh-huh. I have an answer now that you're explaining it and helping me. I, this is, this is funny. I like, I read magazines, okay? I'll read any magazine, anything. Not Sports Illustrated, but anything really. I find them, they're bounded, they're small, you can, you know, kind of fold them up. I, I'll, I'll read any kind of goofy magazine. But when, um, but also I find incredibly relaxing um, sort of how to survive in the woods type books. <laughs> and the most recent oddly relaxing book I read was um, uh, by a guy who was a hostage negotiator. And it was sort of about his life and practice and what it takes to be a hostage negotiator. <laughs> this was incredibly relaxing. And I thought I might want to do this. This is recent. This is like last year. And I thought this might be a, a really, it was kind of a secret dream, I guess, of mine. I'm admitting it here in public. I thought I might be a decent hostage negotiator. But then I realized, it was pointed out to me that I would be far too impatient. And also I'd have to join the FBI which I think is out of the question for a couple of important reasons. So that kind of blew up. But that book was just, I mean, I couldn't wait to get to it at night, really. I would, like, settle in and read this thing. So I don't know, guides, yes, to surviving in the woods and, like, making your own um, uh, pemmican and, like, beef jerky and things like that. I love those. I wish I could say, like, you know, I read Nora Roberts and that kind of relaxing stuff, but I don't. It's just those weird guides. Yes. Um, that being said... <laughs> hostage negotiator i i was i was um always intrigued but it was a, a very well-written book and and he did sort of very neatly you know lay out the um intrigue and then also the sort of um downsides which also included 
being called from you know your bed at three in the morning constantly, which was is not my style. So yeah, it was kind of a combination of of, of both. Yeah. Okay. You, you hit some cute. You mean like early on? Is that sort of what kick-started all of that? You know, books like for kids, like Stuart Little or Charlotte's Web, when you're read very early on, when you're read to very early on, those books create atmospheres and... Um, you know, feelings that really lodge very powerfully in, in you as a kid. And those absolutely had, um, I'm just thinking about those two in particular, those absolutely had um, a way of creating a space. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I liked other bears, not so much those, but I like, yeah. <laughs> Orion. Orion. Mm-hmm. Like the constellation. Okay. Thank you. Thank you We're so good. Much. Thank you all. Thank you for coming and talking. It was great.